At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 117. I called it living death because I think it's a death. Because we can't go back to the foundation of our faith. We can't go back to the foundation of our family. We can't go back to the foundation of our church that taught us that we were wrong. It's a death. Rachel Ward is a public theologian and LGBTQ activist currently pursuing their Master of Divinity and Master of Arts in Practical Theology, Pastoral Care, at Columbia Theological Seminary. They believe deeply in the liberative work of narrative as a divine form of pastoral care and the embodiment that all of God's people are indeed uniquely made and beloved. They're the creator of the Living Death Doula Model for Pastoral Care, which we're going to get into. This is fascinating stuff. And the co-founder of Bible Query, a facilitation collective geared toward queer wellness and reconstruction. Rachel lives in Atlanta with their wife, Chelsea, and their two fur babies. I'm so excited to have Rachel on the show today. We've been talking about this for quite a while. Rachel is doing fascinating work around death. Which, you know, light topic, fun topic. That's what we do here at Queerology. I don't have any announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Rachel, hi, welcome. Hi, Matthias. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Really. Oh, I am thrilled. I I know we have talked about this for a long time, so (laughs) we have, yes. Finally (laughs) happening. So (laughs) So to start. The question I ask everyone, how do you identify and how has your faith helped form that identity? Mm, I love this question. And you know, you can prepare for this question as much as you want. And then in the moment, your being wants to say, say something different. Um, <laughs> I, I identify, I'm going to take a different direction. I identify as a, as a storyteller and a space holder for folks to share their narratives. And we will probably talk about narrative, but I love narrative. So I'll say that first, because that's where my passion is. But I identify as a queer, non-binary human being. Uh, My pronouns are they, them. And I am wrestling really hard right now with being able to say out loud that I'm Christian. I know that I am, but that word has a lot of um, sting to it, especially after the last uh, four years in our country, in the U.S. So, and my faith, <laughs> yeah, that like there's a split in that. I think that my upbringing faith did not help me form my identity. It kept me from my identity. And I would say the faith that is sprout from discovering myself helps me stay in tune with myself and other people. And yeah, so there's like a, there's a split in that a little bit. Like there's a twinge in the end of that. I think that I found my identity first and then I discovered my faith when I realized I was a whole person. Walk me through what that looked like, that, that 
discovering your identity and then finding your faith? Because it sounds like you had some, like, I I mean, I don't know if faith would be the right word, but at least belief system (laughs) beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. I was raised in a place with like true Georgia red clay, which is really just dirt that's really deep, rich red and would get all over your clothes. Like I was raised in like a farming town, very small rural farming town where all the churches are on the same square. Except for the Episcopal Church, you know, they were kind of like a little bit further away. They were too progressive for the downtown square. (laughs) Um, And I spent my life being raised predominantly in a Southern Baptist congregation. So very much like left behind-esque era (laughs) being raised in the you either do it right or you do it wrong. And if you do it wrong, you're going to go to hell, which encompassed like, you know, homosexuals go to, you know, go to hell. I about said, I said, I was about to say go to jail. Go to jail. I mean, it sounds like a great jail to me. But I mean, a great party. I would love to go to that party. Um, where, where all the gays are. Let's please go there. Yeah. So there are like pieces of the foundation of my faith that definitely helped me form where I am right now. But a lot of it was rooted in, in a very purity culture-esque evangelicalism that I would not lay claim to today and really kept me separated and disembodied from even the notion of my queerness. I would have never used that word then. And I would have never even gotten close to trying to like identify myself as gay or lesbian, which would have been like the two vocab words in this town (laughs) that would have existed. So it wasn't until classic, like, go to college situation that I had a friend the first day at orientation just walk up to me and and say, you know that you're gay, right? What? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. Um, Wow. Who at the time wasn't really a friend. Like, it was a complete stranger and now is one of my one of my really good friends. But I was pretty daring and bold. But this is also I went to a college in a small town in Alabama. So probably like her thought process was like, we have to find the gays because we need to form our little safety. And me and my like uh, Bermuda shorts, I think is what you called them. And like uh, my Abercrombie T-shirt, I guess that was like really sending the signals. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's wild. (laughs) Yeah, so I denied that for a while. And then I remember like a month or two in, I met this um, older woman. She was a senior who ran track and I was just like smitten and I knew that I was smitten. And then I was like, what's going on? You're not supposed to be smitten in this way. And of course, I am a curious being. So I ended up kissing this woman and then called that same friend like, You know, like how you hide, like a shameful kind of hiding, like late at night in my room, like under the covers, called my friend and was like, what if I am gay? (laughs) How do you meet women? (laughs) And so like I dated secretly for a while, like a very like double life. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. And started to come out like at college and that was kind of the source of like finding identity and letting go of the fate that said no. Like I still fundamentally believed that like God was real and like God loved me 
and like the suffering I had experienced in the early years of my college life were not from God. Like that can't be what my childhood self believed. This isn't the same. And it wouldn't be until my late 20s that I would like re-enter a church building and be like, oh, I can engage my faith now because I'm not completely shattered and disembodied and don't know who I really am kind of thing. I know like you're in seminary now and and you're doing like actual like academic theological work like you I mean just presented at, at AAR the American Academy of Religion like I mean that's like the theological conference. <laughs> it really yeah it really is. I mean one that's just amazing that that you as a queer person are living into that space but also the work that you're doing like like you're doing work around death you're doing work around grief you're doing work around death doulas which is a term i wasn't f- really familiar with like explain that to me as if i were like a kindergartner <laughs> oh my goodness yeah thank you for that it was really wild to be accepted and to present at the national conference and Like, I don't want to be, I want to like say this before I answer your question. So I believe deeply as like a person who believes myself to be like a practical theologian, which just means that I care about what it means to be human and also be in relationship with God, divine creator, whoever that is for you. I don't believe in institution and, and the academy itself. I do believe that our voices belong there because they have never had seat at the table fully. So I kind of float in between academy, church, and public square. So I just want to like say that first because I think it matters to, to name that. Institutions are a whole other beast, but to be able to bring our voices there does matter. So, and I'm explaining this to a kindergartner. <laughs> you, you know, I'm not a youth pastor, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> fine, a college student, whatever you want to imagine. That's <laughs> no, um, well, I think to answer the death doula, I have to talk about birth for a second. So, there are birth doulas, or people that we call midwives can be also called a birth doula, and there are death doulas. And these are both individuals that work with a family and a person who is giving birth or entering the process of of dying. And this doula is doing exactly what that word says. This doula is is a guide, not taking that person in a direction, but walking with them, helping them feel their feelings, feel their emotions, feel the pains in their body, and share that that narrative with the family about what's going on. So birth is this thing that we talk about a lot because it's this beautiful burst of life that comes into the room. And death is this thing that we're stig is stigmatically a word. That's what wants to come out of my mouth right now. (laughs) So, but it's not a word. We have this stigma I liked it though. We have this stigma that death is this dark, damp, terrible, awful, thing that we never want to happen to us. And we don't talk about it at all. Yet every day we are dying in our living. 
And it does matter to talk about death in an honoring way and to name that it's real, whether you're religious or not. Because I know we could talk about that in a spiritual sense, but I'm just talking about dying as a thing that we do. And so a death doula is specifically helping a person and helping their body do something that the body has been doing forever since creation. And it's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful caring of making sure that person's needs and wants are being met, especially if they have a end-of-life documentation, which is just essentially stating things like, I want blankets, I want specific songs, I want my right hand to be rubbed, please don't touch my left hand, like very down to the like specific, specific of how you want to be cared for to your medical decisions. And so they're this liaison on your behalf for your family who is experiencing grief as you're dying and for you as you're experiencing every wealth of emotion. And it's to kind of help that person not be sucked into a westernized view of like putting off the dying, but allowing the body to naturally progress through that process to wherever we may believe or that person may believe that they're going. And so it's it's a really beautiful, beautiful caregiving role. So that's how I would explain it. Whether that was good for a kindergartner or not, that's how I would do it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and and I understand, at least in how you explained it. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so... I mean, as, as you talk about that, it's stunning in its beauty. Th- this idea of someone who can walk with you with someone in this terrifying experience, but also just help guide, be alongside. It is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I just, I spend a lot of time thinking about, it's not a sense of better off because we're not all uniquely going to have equal experiences in this world because there are continued injustices in death too, and in our living. But if we talked about death and grief more, would we be more attuned to what's going on around us and to what's happening daily within us so that we could enter this process when we do get to that moment, whenever that may be, a little bit more embodied so that even if it is terrifying, we collectively are aware and we have these like guides with us. Uh, we have our doula with us. We have our family who knows what we want and what we desire. Yeah, it's just so important. So you're taking this idea of death doulas and dying and grief, but you're also overlaying it on like the queer experience, the queer faith experience coming out of like repressive religion, you're intersecting those two things in in ways that I have never heard this talked about before. That excites me. (laughs) I would agree. So I think to explain or kind of elaborate that overlap, I want to say why it happened or how it happened. I have always had an interest in death and grief because I'm queer. And because as a queer person, I have experienced death and grief in a unique way. And I know we as, but, but we do. As a community, we experience death in a way that other communities cannot speak to or understand. 
especially within the trans and non-binary community, within our overarching queer community, especially there. Like, that just needs to be named. And so, because I am interested in death and grief in my queer lens, I took an elective course at seminary, a death, dying, and grief course. And uh, we, we're going to get theological for five seconds, but then we're going to come back. <laughs> so, in that course, I read... Melissa Kelly's Mosaic of Grief. It was kind of her dissertation that she made into a book. And she talks about living loss, which is like a pretty good known term in, in death and grief world. And how sometimes people who experience a living loss. So, for example, living loss is, okay, my grandmother passed away in September. That is a living loss. I'm still here, but I lost someone. And so Kelly talks about how sometimes for people who have a living loss, we can go back to something foundational to help us get back together again. And I realized when I read that, that for queer people, the thing that causes us the loss in our faith, if you're intersecting queerness and faith, the thing that causes us the loss is us. <laughs> so we can't go back to something foundationally to help us get through our grief. So that was where the, the epiphany light bulb went off. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what do we do with that? Like, what is that called? So I, <laughs> I called it living death because I think it's a death. Because we can't go back to the foundation of our faith. We can't go back to the foundation of our family. We can't go back to the foundation of our church that taught us that we were wrong, which is a lie, <laughs> but I'm just kind of walking you through this. It's a death and we're still here, but some of us aren't. And the reason may be because we couldn't handle the living death anymore. And so for me, I started to ask questions of, well, why does that happen? Why are we stuck? What's creating that stuckness? What is here for us care-wise in, in a pastoral care sense? And so, like I said earlier that I care about narratives, so I call them living death narratives. They're narratives that can get stuck in your body, in your mind, and in your spirit. And if you're disembodied, you're probably not connected to those three things. And so you might be walking around cognitively trying to figure something out, but have no idea that this living death, you know, is in your lower hamstring somewhere, you know, like, for, but for real, or in your spirit somewhere, it aches somewhere when you walk into a church still, but you don't know why, because you don't know that living death narrative is there, if that makes sense. And so grief itself, Grief is what keeps these living death narratives kind of stuck in and compacted into our like disembodied beings. So that <laughs> is kind of what created the desire to go further into research and trying to figure out, well, how do we dislodge them? How do we break that up? There's so much in what you just said. <laughs> I am a four. <laughs> and I care a lot about this. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I can feel that it feels like it's just like coming through and in, in the energy as you're talking. Like, and then I'm having a hard time just like focusing in on any one thing because I feel like my mind is just kind of being expanded right now as you're talking. But, but this, 
this idea of the living death, the living loss, like that we have lost ourselves. I mean, am, am I hearing that well? Like, like we've we're actually grieving our own selves and we don't have a place to go back to. That is correct. Yeah, you're hearing that part right. And, and so these these narratives, these loss narratives are are lodged in our body. I mean, I I mean that makes so much sense to me as a therapist. Like trauma literally gets lodged <laughs> in our bodies. It is not a cognitive thing. It is an embodied thing. So say more. <laughs> I'm stumbling because I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to process I know, this. I know, I know, I <laughs> know. So you said something really interesting there, though, about grief. And I think you said it, 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 grief is is keeping us from these things. And, and I'm so curious, is, is it grief or is it the inability to grieve? Oh, that's see, this is what makes this so fun because this is like continued work. And so I love having conversations, especially with therapists, about, <laughs> about this work. I will say that the way I wrote this and the way I proposed it is that grief encapsulates the living death narratives. And for me, I'm looking at it from a, a perspective of, okay, how do we poke a hole in the grief so that the narratives can be moved around so that we can actually, in return, feel the grief and move with it? So you're not off base with your question. It kind of is like a both and situation, but there's so much. And I don't want to keep talking because I don't want to muddy the waters. So I'm going to rest there. <laughs> hey, y'all, I wanted to tell you about a new resource that I have up on my website. It's a masterclass that I recorded with Linda K. Klein. If you haven't heard of Linda, she's the author of the book Pure, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. So Linda and I last year sat down and recorded a masterclass called Four Practices You Can Start Now to Move Beyond Shame. If you were around for my book launch, you're, you're aware we were giving away that for free. Now we're making it available to everyone. So if you want that masterclass, it is, it's free. <laughs> Just head over to my website, MatthiasRoberts.com. It'll be the first thing that you see on there. Just click, I want the masterclass, put in your email address, and I will send you the masterclass right away. Four practices you can start now to move beyond shame. It's an incredible resource. Most of it's Linda's work, really embodied practices that you can start wherever you are at on your journey with shame. So highly recommend it. MatthiasRoberts.com. Hope you enjoy it. And I think that idea of of stuckness feels really relatable to me. Like those places of where maybe where we can work cognitively. Like we can think about things, we can argue things logically, we can read things, but it doesn't actually feel like it's getting anywhere. We don't feel like we're okay. We don't we don't feel like we can go back to church. We don't feel like we're actually believing what we're reading. Like I, I know I spent years in that place of reading affirming theology, but not actually being able to get there. Like I was stuck and I couldn't figure out why. And and it feels like, I mean, what you're talking about is like you're proposing, well, there's a, a reason for that. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought up affirming theology because that's kind of the source of 
like when I was asking myself, like, what is available pastorally? That is it. Affirming theology, aka the the biblical case, the offering of why it is okay to be gay through the vehicle of blowing up. I like to blow things up and <laughs> blowing up the clobber passages per se. That is the offering. And that is what, yeah, I'm going to say it. That is what every queer organization offers to us is the biblical case. And I'm not saying I want everyone to hear me very, very, very clear. I'm not saying that the biblical case is bad, wrong, not good, not a useful tool. I'm saying by itself, it's actually incredibly harmful that there has to be another pairing. And to go therapy route, <laughs> there's a psychologist, uh, I think I'm going to say the person's name right, Peter Levin. Levine, yeah. Levine, boom, mm -hmm. there you go. You know. Um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you of all people would know exactly how to say that last name. Is in my research a lot, but you know, he's talking about when we're traumatized, which we've been traumatized with the biblical text, right? Like the Bible has been the cognitive tool used to torment us as queer people and disembody us. I'm not trying to convince you. That's just like what I believe. You can believe anything you want to believe. Yet, what I want to say is that when we're traumatized by something, we're kind of like frozen in the suspended animation. This is what Peter would say. And I think that we're forced into this like disembodiment because we're overusing like our left side of the brain, the side of the brain that is cognitively working on like an overdrive to make sense of the trauma. Like, why did this really bad thing happen to me? Like, why did so-and-so dump me? And you're just cognitively trying to figure it out, right? You're just spinning and spinning and, and over here hanging out in the left side of your brain. While the right side of our brain, our felt sense, where we get to know where we are, who we are, and how we feel, has been basically like the light switch has been turned off. And so, like, the biblical case itself, like, when I work with people, so I'm the, the co-founder of uh, a collective, I don't really know what we are, we're a thing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> called Bible Query. And so we run a cohort with folks to help them do exactly what I'm talking about, move past just the biblical case, and look at our spiritual self, our bodies, our emotions, helping people kind of get re-embodied to remember that they do have senses and feelings um, and re-engage those because the people that come to us to our cohorts are like, why is this not enough? Like I've read the biblical case a billion times, makes cognitive sense to me, but I still ache. I still hurt. And I don't know why. Yeah. Like that sense of why don't I feel okay? Like I believe I'm okay. <laughs> why don't I feel that way? Like, like I feel like I run into that all the freaking time. <laughs> And, and if I'm hearing you well, you're saying like, well, that's because we've put so much emphasis on the argument and not on the places where we have left ourselves. Absolutely. That is what I'm saying. We, A, in our Western society, are cognitive as heck. We hyper-intellectualize everything. This is, I know it's like really overbearing to say we, 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 but like, 
I do. Institutions teach you that. Academia teaches you that. We are just using our cognitive state, like, constantly in overdrive. And so it makes sense to me that we want to argue with our intellect, right? Like, we want to say, no, you're wrong, and I'm going to prove why you're wrong. And the biblical case is sound. Like, I believe in it. But it's not enough to help me re-embody the pieces of myself that have been strewn across childhood to now. It seems like narrative then has a massive role in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm too, I feel that. like I'm too excited to talk about this. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like, I'm like, but I'm excited because I hope that whoever's listening right now is starting to have this, like, tingly moment of, like, oh, crap, like, this is, like, answering something for me. Like, there's something here. And I, like, just want to pull the thread a little bit. Like, this kind of is the first time that this has made sense to me. A lot of people that I have sat with, including the person I use this model on, which I'm about to explain, when we were through with this activity, said, I've never in my entire life been able to tell my whole narrative and, like, do it honestly and truthfully and, like, know where it's coming from. So... I just like I get excited, not because I'm excited that we've had all this harm and toxic sludge and grief and death in our world, but because I think this is going to help people. So, yeah, <laughs> I am excited. So there the narrative plays a massive role. And in my research and in sitting with people, for example, I met with queer death doulas because it was very important to me to work with queer people only because this research is based in a queer lens. So queer death doulas, queer pastors, queer therapists, and queer hospice nurses to really kind of like understand how they use narrative, what they see. And I sat with queer people as well. And what I discovered and realized is that there are these kind of cyclical phases that kind of keep us stuck with our narratives. So there's disassociation which I feel like you're familiar with. <laughs> We're all familiar. I'm very familiar with disassociation. <laughs> I am so good at it. Um, there's disassociation, minimizing the persistent themes, like those, let me think of one that I think everyone can kind of chew on. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy for God. God doesn't love me. These kind of persistent queer themes that we've heard so, so we're like minimizing ourselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and spiritual rationing. Like I've only ever been able to have the crumbs. So I can't imagine a world where I could have anything more, where there would be a seat at the table for me with God. So all of these things are narratives that keep us stuck, that keep us in this like living death, this like just achy, achy, achy disembodied place disassociating from certain types of groups of people because we don't want them to know about our queerness or we have to dis disassociate because it triggers us to a situation. And you can disassociate while reading the biblical case. So I want to lift that up as well. And minimizing, like you were talking about, Matthias, like minimizing your actual self, like you're not worthy so I don't, I don't really fully get to be in this room. And the persistent theme aspect kind of like helps influence that minimization. And then spiritual rationing is just, well, crumbs is what I get. So I'm not going to go to church. Even if the church is affirming, like I can't 
bring myself to do that because of the harm I've experienced. And all of these things are working to keep us from being whole, from being embodied. These things that you're talking about, I mean, they're so deeply ingrained, right? Like, like you're not just talking about like, you know, kind of easily combated story, right? Like, like you were, I mean, you're, you're talking about, I mean, these really deep parts of ourselves that, I mean, you're saying it, we're stuck in them. And I know you're about to tell us, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> yeah, I'm only laughing because I feel <laughs> like it's, it's not simple. So I'm going to say it's simple, but it's like, not this grand, like, ta-da, trumpets, red carpet, and then I give you, like, this really big, this is how you deal. It's just that, I think you kind of said it earlier, like, we have just negated that felt sense. Like, we've spent so much time in the cognitive that we've forgotten or never known how to be with ourselves fully with our felt sense and our cognitive, like, working together. So there are, it's, I call them uh, living death directives, which is just like homage and a play on death directives, end of life directives, because that's who I spent so much time with. And it's, uh, it starts with the most important thing ever, which is absolutely zero expectation. And this is all narrative. And I want to state that when I walked through these phases that I just talked about with a queer person. I did not do that as a therapist. I am not a therapist. I am a seminarian student, and that is that. What we did is a series of consent conversations where there needed to be a therapist post our call, and that I would give all of the narrative and our Zoom video to that person so that they could go to therapy and know where to start and actually have like their narrative ready to go. That feels important to say because I am by no means a therapist. But the first step, this is all involving listening. The first step is zero, zero, zero expectation. In our Christian journey... <laughs> I think that we place a lot of expectation on things. And what I mean is that like there's expectation of salvation, expectation of grace, expectation of mercy, expectation of resurrection. And if we go into this experience expecting that we're going to get those things, then we may not go to the places we need to go to feel the things we need to feel. So no expectations of when I get through with talking through this everything's going to be better. Everything's going to be great. I'm going to be healed. Like before I started this with the individual that I worked with, I literally said, I promise you nothing. And in our Christian relationship, I think we promise too much. And we kind of enmesh that in care. And so there's something about saying that to a person and creating that brave space with a person that I'm sure you are aware of as a therapist that makes a lot of space, which is the second thing. <laughs> See, I told you it sounds so simple, but yet it is really not a ton of space. Howard Thurman played a really large role in this part of my research. Do you love Howard Thurman? I'm just curious. I am not overly familiar with his work. Oh my gosh, Matthias. 
this. <laughs> I'm going to. So tell me about it. <laughs> I'm going to send you a book. <laughs> great. Great, great, great. Howard Thurman is like the OG mystic theologian, like Howard Thurman, Jesus and the Disinherited was the book that MLK Jr. had in his briefcase everywhere he went. And he's just a beautiful, like, oh gosh, like liberation, mystic, very spiritual focused theologian and writes that way. And so Howard Thurman talks about um, the sound of the genuine. And the sound of the genuine is like your true self, your true knowing, the true imprint that God created you in the image of, that only you have a unique marker. And he says that the sound, the journey to discover the sound of the genuine is, is super hard. And he's an elaborate writer. And so he talks about this journey of getting in like this see not worthy makeshift rowboat and going to like islands to islands and finally getting to this far away distant island going way upstairs going inside a building there's an angel and like this flaming sword you take the flaming sword and you have claimed the sound of the genuine like this is he's trying to make the point that this is not easy work but it's a necessary work because if we get bound up in what other people tell us we are we're never really fully living and so he says that we have to make immense space so that we can sort out all the voices that the world gives us to find the one that, that God gave us. And he says that it's our job as pastors and as humans to each other to ask really searing questions. And so in that space that you make, in that intent listening, you have to listen really carefully to that person who's sharing and ask really searing questions. So it's really important to have that consent and that brave space dynamic set up in the beginning. And the third one is what I talked about in the very beginning about how queer people know death in a really unique way. And that is also our access point to liberation here. Our culture is uniquely different from, you know, the mainstream cis straight culture. The way that we do live and breathe can be something that we can harness onto to resiliently like pull ourselves through. And so I suggest that leaning in to our unique relationship and experience with death can inform how to walk through it in a more sound way. And that's, that's the three steps. <laughs> And I am still like in development of how to take that into like facilitation and accessible writing and wanting to offer that in a way that meaningfully helps folks. It's so different from read these four books and your life will be better. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, as you're talking, it just feels so true to me. Like the, the things that you're talking about is such similar language to, to just how we, you know, as therapists talk about growth and grief and processing trauma and, and like all of these things. But with this added component of this uniquely queer experience of, of, of growing up in oppressive religious contexts. Like, I, I mean, I just love the way that you're putting those things together and saying, like, there is a way out, but, but it looks different from 
reading books. Yeah, it can't be. I mean, if we're going to go, like, we can't get out of the master's house with the master's tools. Like, we can't. It will not work. And I mean, at the end of the day, like, I know I'm excited to talk about this, but we're still dying every day. And numbers that we may never know because of those who are hidden from us because of the dying they're experiencing right now. And until we come into a more communal relationship, like I said that I'm a practical theologian, and what that means is that I'm not afraid to hang out with therapists. I need therapists, you know, as as someone who who serves in a church right now, like I will resource therapy like for myself and for other people. And I need science and I need human connection and we just we can't remain separate and isolated and only in our minds forever. That's what systemic oppression wants us to do. So what is the role, I know we touched on this a little bit, but what is the role of grief? I would love to write more because <laughs> I spent so much time working on what kind of moves around within the narratives that are stuck in us that I think that there's so much more to be said about what happens when we prick the the <laughs> the encapsulation that grief is causing. Like, what does happen with that? And I'm not sure, <laughs> to be honest. I will say that the person that I did sit with and work with, I think this is why it's important, the no expectation component. Grief is a, is a vehicle that we need. Grief isn't bad. And grief sucks, and it's awful, and it feels terrible. But it is a vehicle that we need. And... When I got through working with this person, you know, they said that, that they, A, like I said, that they were able to tell their whole narrative and understand it better and say it in full in a way they've never done before. And they were able to, like, love it, like, have compassion for it. And they were able to, like, realize that, like, they had so much grief and didn't know it. And so perhaps grief's role after that pinprick happens is is holding it for a minute saying oh my god i was carrying this like massive grief weight for 10 years and didn't really know it was still there was just stuck on like well why is it this good enough well it's because you still have this a massive amount of grief rolling around on your shoulders that someone told you if you read these four books it wouldn't be there anymore how i hear that is I mean this idea that again we kind of talked about that a little bit, but like how a grief has to be grieved. There aren't shortcuts, <laughs> but it's so easy to get stuck not grieving. And so that I mean when you talk about that pinprick, at least how how I envision that is is like you're actually almost letting out, like pricking the balloon, <laughs> and then you're actually opening up space for that grief to move and flow instead of being stuck. There's a, this book became like such a fad, but I promised that it was gifted to me before that happened. And I want to make sure I get the title right. It's women who run with the wolves. And there's a, a mystic, uh, 
a Mexican poet is the way that it's said in the book, so I will honor that. She weaves into a particular chapter, and the quote is, give me the death that I deserve, the death that I need. Give me the death that I need. And like how that resonates here is that if I can mourn the loss, then I can let that thing die, and then I can actually breathe and live. And then the next time that perhaps something like this happens, I don't have to live in this like death world in my living being. I actually have a resource in knowing. So death doesn't have to be like our demise. It can be the life entry point. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Rachel, how can people find more of your work? How can they get involved? How can, I mean, you're doing a lot in these places. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am, friend. I'm doing a lot. You can always find me on my socials, which is Queer in Faith. You can also read more about um, this model that we've been talking about. It's called the Living Death Doula. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that out loud. <laughs> but you can read my entire presentation, and you can see interviews with the individuals in my presentation too at queerinfaith.com. And if you feel like you love what you heard and you want to like support the work, I accept coins on Venmo at Queer in Faith. So these are all the ways that you can love on me and continue this work that I am incredibly passionate about. <laughs> In that cohort you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Matthias. So you can go to BibleQuery.com, and query is exactly perhaps maybe what you think it is. It's Q-U-E-E-R-Y, because we've got to get that queer in there. And you can find cohort information there. And if you're interested in it, you can fill out a form. I think we will be launching our next cohort in April. So there's time. Rachel, I mean, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. I'm so thrilled that we, we got to do it and you're a joy and I appreciate all the things you bring into the world. You can find Rachel across social media at Queer in Faith or visit their website, queerinfaith.com. They're also over at biblequery.com if you want to get plugged into that community. Definitely go check that out. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible because of you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air by becoming an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all, bye! Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.